This is an ABC podcast. It is the hottest invite in town. Well, hottest online invite anyway. Yes, this week on Download This Show, is Blue Sky Social the Twitter replacement that so many people are craving? Plus, why Britain is stopping Microsoft from buying one of the world's most important and influential gaming companies. Plus, the billionaire Elon Musk thinks that AI should be stopped, also that AI is too woke, and that AI is technology that he wants to back. And honestly, I have whiplash keeping track of that man's hot takes on AI. Regardless, he has announced a brand new AI. What makes it stand out? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show and joining us for the very first time. Uh, Dr. Erica Mealy, lecturer in computer science at the University of the Sunshine Coast, but not actually in the Sunshine Coast at the moment because Erica is filled with lies. Uh, welcome to download the show for the very first time. Well, thanks for having me. And I, I'm northern southeast Queensland. I'm, I'm at our Morton Bay campus, which is on the <laughs> northern side of Brisbane. We are thrilled to have you on the show. So thank you so much for being here. And joining us from Victoria, Canal Calro, the founder and CEO of Eugene Labs. Welcome back. Thank you. Great to be back as always. And does anybody have an invite to Blue Sky Social? This is the number one question that seems to be floating around on, on Twitter at the moment. Obviously, we know that Twitter is a bit of a mess. And in the, the haze of that, something new has emerged and it's called Blue Sky Social. Canal, for the uninitiated, what is it? All right. So it's a decentralized social network. And that pretty much means that it runs on what you might consider to be open source protocols. What that means is that when you join, you can join like a specific server with its own unique set of rules and interests. So a bit like Reddit. But for now, though, there's only one main server and that everyone's on. But in the future, people can customize their own algorithms and feeds so they get to be in control of what they see and what they experience on the social network. Erica, if you were to just look at Blue Sky Social, how would you describe what it looks like? So it looks, from what I've heard, I, I'm not one of the lucky ones. I haven't got an invite yet, but it looks a lot like Twitter. So a lot of the alternatives for Twitter that were proposed were quite different and quite hard to understand. And so given it's come from Jack Dorsey, who, you know, was very famously co-creator of Twitter and CEO for a long time, it, it looks similar but slightly different. And I think the really great part of it at the moment is that it's creating its own viral marketing campaign because it's so exclusive. They're really, it's sort of pushing that, but they're trying to be the anti-Twitter in terms of they've said content moderation is the very most important thing and that they're not going to give wider access until they've got that right which seems to be what people are really upset about. But the irony is that people are using Twitter to get invites to Blue Sky Social. Which there actually is a long sort of standing tradition of. I mean, you know, remember the early days of Instagram, you could share Instagram straight to, to Twitter and it was a big part of how people migrated, Erica. 
It was, it was. And there was that long running comment about, you know, the, the thing most commonly looked up on Bing was how to install Chrome. <laughs> and so people are now using Twitter to be able to download Blue Sky Social and get their access over there. There's people even auctioning it on eBay for like $190. So I think there's definitely something to be said for the the scarcity of invites adding to the amount of people wanting to talk about it. Kunal, in terms of actually how it is to to use, I mean, obviously people have been posting a lot about the experience of it. How similar is it to engage with to something like Twitter? Do we know? Yeah. So if you look at it from like a UX perspective or just like what it looks like and what it feels like when you're using it, it's very, very similar to Twitter, but it's very different to it in a specific and really interesting way. And one of the things that it allows users to do is to be just more in control of what you see and all of your data. And I think that that is something that users on Twitter have long wanted, but Twitter is not really the platform for it. And so because this is starting from the ground up, they can rebuild a version of Twitter that just makes most sense for the users that actually want to be on Twitter. Dr. Erica, is this something that you think, just like based on what we've seen, does it feel like it has the makings of something that could be a suitable replacement or is it going to be something new entirely? What's your vibe? I honestly think it is likely to be a bit of a replacement. I think the trouble with like Mastodon, which is one of the other competitors, was that it looked and felt very different and it was very familiar to us sort of techies that understood decentralized servers and and even like the world of Warcraft and all these online type environments that had this multi-server model. It works for us, but not for the general people, whereas Twitter was really great at appealing to the masses. But the great thing, uh, as uh, Kunal said, is, you know, you're owning your own data. So there was always that issue about, can I maintain ownership and copyright over something I put up onto the the Twitters and the Instagrams and, and all these kinds of platforms? And this is stated from the beginning, it's your data. And I think even better is that it allows us to be able to also look at and manage our own feed. So part of the, I think, problem with a lot of what we've got with Twitter these days is that the feed is manipulated. So we're being force-fed whatever the company wants us to know. And in fact, they've actually said that with the, the new Twitter, the subscription model, that you'll be put at the top of the feed. So we're being given exactly what they want us to have as opposed to what we're interested in. And so I think that power of the people and that owning your own data is really going to make a big difference. And it's been something that's been coming for a really long time. What do you think, Canal? Do you think this has the makings of a replacement? I think so. I mean, I wouldn't rule out Twitter. It's got 300 million active users, so it's not something that's just going to disappear overnight. But from the early reviews and is fewer meanies and more fun. And to be honest, I think that's what Twitter was right at the very beginning. And that's what really like drove the traction for Twitter. So I think it has potential. It's interesting, Erica, you were saying, you know, Mastodon was unlikely to catch on, but it's harder to use for people that aren't tech initiated. I feel like after 10 years of doing the show, I'm reasonably tech initiated. And I found Mastodon quite sort of unintuitive. And I do think one thing that does stand out about Blue Sky, again, even just based on what we've seen on screenshots and early reviews, is it has got a little bit of that that cleanliness and that simplicity that that follows through. You know, if we acknowledge that the early days of any tech platform generally are, broadly speaking, nicer, right? It's smaller communities and therefore there's more, more friends, less mean, right? Can that actually be sustained as things scale and grow? Like, is there an inevitability to the fact that when social media platforms get bigger, that they get more uncontrollable? Is there any sense that this could be different from the same trajectory that is followed with well, you know, pretty much all of the other platforms. 
It can go one of two ways. I think the danger of it being small is it's more of an echo chamber. The greatest power of the internet is the democratizing of information and the greatest cost and risk of the internet is the democratizing of information (laughs) because the more that's out there, the more strange takes, the more, you know, non-factual information that can come in. But I think the power to manipulate your own feed, as it were, hopefully means that it's going to be slightly nicer. But without getting our hands dirty, it's very hard to know. And the other thing as well is there's no verification yet. And so that seems to be something that really hits a lot of these platforms hard. How do they do verification? And there's already counts that there are impersonators on Blue Sky Social, which is challenging to understand when it's invite only. How have you let someone on <laughs> impersonating someone else? It's a very motivated customer. So you're saying that, that you haven't been able to pay for a blue tick yet on Blue Sky Social, like you can do on, on Twitter. Well, some along the lines of, you know, what kind of verification? How do we know that that account that says, you know, Mark is actually Mark? How do we know it's not you know, Susan, who has a vendetta against Mark, who wants to to say that he says things that he doesn't. And that that whole idea of being able to authenticate that voice in terms of who actually said what is really challenging on the internet. So the open source nature is good in the sense that we should be able to have enough people looking at it to say, yes, I believe you've authenticated as yourself. But then how do you establish it? I recently locked myself out of my Facebook and uh, Facebook told me that I could not have access to reset my password because I was not myself, even though I sent them a copy of my driver's license showing that I was. And so in that context, how does anyone prove that they're anyone? Well, I guess you just got to rely on Susan's good graces at that point, don't you? (laughs) It does. It does. Sorry to all the Susans out there. (laughs) Susan knows what she did. She made a bed. She can light it. <laughs> Download this show is what you are listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Mark Fennell is my name. Our guest this week, Dr. Erica Mealy, lecturer at the University of the Sunshine Coast and Kunal Kalro, the founder and CEO of Eugene Labs. And much has been made this year of chat GPT. This is the AI system where it can write or rewrite just about anything you want. Interestingly, uh, Elon Musk, yes, drink, has announced that he's working on something called just wait for it. Truth, GPT. Erica, do you care to explain what such a thing is? Right. Well, so the idea is he was one of the biggest proponents of OpenAI. He was on the original board and he was talking about how it's going to revolutionize society. He also talked about how it's likely to be the downfall of society. He then led a campaign saying that we should stop this mass experiment. And then I think when no one listened to that, he decided that he would create his own, which based on what he said he was going to do to Twitter and what's now happening at Twitter, I'm a little dubious, but allegedly it's going to look at getting to the maximum truth of the nature of the universe using AI. Now, my fundamental problem with it is that AI is a statistic, well, these particular models, these large language models, they're based on input coming in. And so they take in large amounts of input to generate a summary of the output. So in that context, how do you define truth? And also part of his claim at the moment is that they are making chat GPT, quote, politically correct. So... 
I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what we know about Truth GPT at the moment. Well, it's definitely the answer to the question, can Elon Musk ever be pinned down with an official opinion on AI? Uh, the answer being no. It's a real roller coaster that Elon Musk take on AI, Kunal. I think that Elon Musk's attempt at doing AI is actually more driven by his opinion on free speech. So if you look at what he's doing currently with Twitter, eliminating moderation, and it's all under the guise of free speech. His whole concept around this, you know, truth GPT model now is that, uh, well, we want to understand the true nature of the universe. And apparently the blocker to that in the current models like OpenAI and so on and so forth is that we're adding filters, constraints, and we're trying to align how the AI responds to our questions to match our society's goals of, you know, equality, reduce gender or racial bias to protect minors, so on and so forth. Musk considers this to be training AI to be, as Erica said, politically correct, which he considers to be a way of being untruthful or lying. So his whole thing is actually around moderation under the guise of free speech. And apparently Truth AI will solve that problem and also ensure that we have a better future. I'm not sure how, to be honest, but that is what he believes. I mean... This Look, this might be a dangerous question to ask, but on some le level, do you think he has a point, Erica, that that um, putting those strictures in affect a concept of free speech or is actually to, necessary to put some kind of filters on it to stop it from becoming the cesspool that the internet so often wants to be? That's it. I often tell my students that the internet is a race to the bottom a lot of the time. And it's not the good of humanity. It's sometimes showcasing the very worst. And I, I do wonder if we'd started... Wikipedia now, if it would look more like Reddit or if it would look like what Wikipedia is, because we started Wikipedia when it was, you know, this utopia. We can all share and update truth and and share the knowledge. Yet Reddit now is is definitely the Wild West in some respects. There's definitely some darker places of the internet. But I think the importance of filters, it, it comes into where do we want to go as a people? So we've seen what great things can be done with social media in terms of supporting the Arab Spring and being able to get media behind sort of closed doors, as it were, for nation states. But at the same time, we've also seen what can happen when, you know, you manipulate feeds and we can manipulate American elections and we can do all kinds of things deliberately by, you know, using that volume of information. So what, what does he define as truth? Is it the thing that's said most often? Is it the thing that's said by the expert? I mean, if you looked at the the early Bing chat bot, it got the date wrong because, well, statistically speaking, 2022 is going to be in its input set more than 2023 when you're actually in January 23. They had to correct that because the input said it was wrong. If there's no weighting, there's no filtering, there's no anti-biases, are we just going to bury expert opinion? So I don't quite understand how he's defining truth, but I agree with uh, Kunal that in, it's what he considers to be free speech, but I don't, do we really want completely free speech on the internet? That's not something we have enshrined in our legislation in Australia. We like to actually be respectful and not put people down and being able to, to do that. So I, I, I'm not sold on it yet. But, and that's just taking Musk out of the equation. I'm not sold on how he's going to define truth or how the organization's going to be able to even achieve this. What do you think, Adele? 
Uh, yeah, I second that opinion, to be honest. I think that if truth is defined by what is popular opinion on the internet and just like whatever data is being used to guide the training data set, then that is what it's going to spew out. And if that is racial bias, if that's misogyny, if that's mistreatment of minors, that's not actually in line with what we believe to be our goals as a society. So in that way, it's it's truth as in, in terms of like that is that's what the data is saying, but it's not actually where we want to go. And so we do need filters to help AI get us to where we want to go. That's the real goal here. It's not just about like putting out just you know, putting out whatever it is that you're like putting into the inputs. It's about moving us towards a better future. And I don't think that this model of free, unadulterated and unmoderated speech is the right way to go about it. That's my opinion. And it doesn't really matter if it was Musk doing it or someone else. I would still hold that opinion. Chat, GBT and Elon Musk are certainly by no means the only AI outfit. This last couple of weeks, uh, uh, Snapchat, the messaging service, rolled out their very own AI chatbot to, I think it's safe to say, Canal kind of mixed reviews. Ex exactly what is it that they've rolled out? So the first thing to know is that it's powered by the same tech that powers Microsoft's Bing search engine. It's the OpenAI GPT. For that reason, the responses can be equally hit or miss. <laughs> and so, and there have been a few misses. The main thing uh, over here is that Snapchat's primary user base is teenagers. And so while we're all used to a new AI model coming out and it's just coming up with answers that don't really make any sense or are not very well filtered, we're kind of like, it's part and parcel for a new product launch in the AI space, I feel. But I think this time, people are a little bit more concerned because it's kids who are using it. This is going to sound really silly, but like, what sort of things can all the people actually using it for? Like, what's it meant to do? Let me give you an example that is not good, and it has been used for this. So someone posed as a child and asked the AI tool to advise them on how to lie to their parents about going on a trip with a 31-year-old man. And the tool then, of course, like provided guidance and advice. And that's not great. So people can use it for that. Of course, people are also using it for like more simple stuff in the same way that we use ChatGPT, just asking random questions. So people are using it as that as well. It's all about like what a teenager is going to ask an open AI model. And it could be anything. It really could. Yeah. I can absolutely confirm that. My daughter took great <laughs> pleasure in asking uh, the Bing chatbot how to craft an orange helmet for our cat. At least the uh, the Bing chatbot did say that it didn't believe the cat would enjoy wearing an orange as a helmet, but uh, it, it's interesting what uh, teenagers are going to use it for. The good thing though is uh, Snapchat have come out and they've added additional guardrails to it from what I understand is they've, they've made sure it can't swear, it doesn't talk about violence, uh, no politics, which I think is one of the sort of more contentious parts of some of the chat GPT. They've locked down a lot of the types of issues that have got it banned from schools. So it refuses to write essays, allegedly. I haven't tried it. Part of the, the problem with ChatGPT, I think, is that uh, people are misusing it. Again, we come back to this idea of where do we want to go as a society and can we push the AI to answer in such a way that, you know, it, it won't do things. But of course, Reddit tries to break everything. So even the early ChatGPT chat days. But doesn't matter what rules we get on, particularly I think teenagers are going to find ways around it. 
But there's a huge child protection element, uh, as you pointed out, Kanal, that particularly around the location data, you know, is this being shared outside of people? And Snapchat's answer was really interesting. They said there's no new location data being shared, which I don't know if the young people that are setting these accounts up really have that maturity to understand what data they're putting out there and how vulnerable they're making themselves by sharing this information in the first place. So definitely a scary one around the user group that are using it, but at least sounds like they're trying to lock it down a bit more. But uh, that's a scary example, Canal. The example you gave earlier, Canal, about somebody, you know, what very much sounds like somebody being groomed. Has Snapchat come back with an answer for that? Have they come back with a response for how they would make it so that that, you know, doesn't happen? Yeah, I think that they've come back and said, look, we're working on the filters. And it's the same thing that everyone says after they launch a product like this. It's like, we're working on the filters. It's still in early stages and we're going to continue building on it. I don't think most people are introducing these products with <laughs> with the mindset that they don't want to do the best for their users and make sure that, you know, the bot's not spewing out hate or misguiding children and things like that. So I think everyone's just trying. And I think they're saying that, hey, we're working on it and we're going to keep working on it. There's a part of me that just goes, you're a big company. Why don't you work on it before you release it out to the world, Erica? Is that just quite naive of me? I think part of the challenge is that, and this comes down to there's a maximum usability, which is know thy user and you are not thy user. And that's the thing, like we can put our testers in and they can test things, but people come up with ingenious ways of putting stuff in. I wouldn't have thought to ask Bing about orange helmets for cats, but my teenager did. And so there's an element of testing can never be comprehensive. And so some of these problems are always going to be found in beta. So when it's actually released to a wider group, the challenge though, I think for the organizations is, should we be experimenting on young people? And I think most of society would say, no. Well, not when the cat with the orange hat is available. I mean. Well, no, of course. <laughs> For the record, I'm not in favour of animal testing, even if we're just testing social media platforms on them. And finally, here on Download This Show, uh, no Microsoft, you're not allowed to buy Call of Duty, apparently, um, which I did not know was on the cards. Erica, what's transpired with Microsoft? Yeah, so Microsoft has tried to buy Activision Blizzard, which is a massive company that owns World of Warcraft, owns Call of Duty, Candy Crush. Because it's a worldwide platform, it has to get approval in the US, in the UK, and from the European Union. They're our main sort of regulatory environments these days. And the UK has come out and said, essentially, no, because it's anti-competitive behavior. And uh, Sony raised it initially because I said, well, if Microsoft buys it, their Xbox competes with our PlayStation. They will have uh, sort of the license to be able to stop it coming out on my platform. And that would be anti-competitive behavior. Not that, you know, Microsoft have ever done anything <laughs> like that. Um, but uh, so, but they've actually ruled in terms of cloud gaming. So basically Microsoft said, well, we won't be anti-competitive with the console games. That wouldn't make any sense. That would chop out a large part of our profits and our market. So we would never do that. But Microsoft already has, according to some sources, up to 60, 70% of the cloud gaming market. And so the regulator has essentially said, taking Activision, you would have a monopoly. And so we don't believe that that should be supported. 
So what's the recourse available to Microsoft now? Do they have anything they can offer, they can change in the deal that might make it more palatable to the UK? They're both appealing, as far as I understand. Both Microsoft and Activision have actually now um, appealed into the organisation that's made this ruling. The interesting thing was the UK went first, but the US have also started legal action to try and stop it. So if the UK one does win on appeal and they do get the okay to do it, it could still be stopped by the EU or by the US. It's an interesting one in terms of they already offered a lot of concessions. So they're appealing it, but there's no definite case that they'll definitely be able to do that. Canal, do you agree or disagree with the call that the UK has made? Honestly, <laughs> I probably disagree. What I find interesting is that regulators use like a merger or an acquisition as a point in time to prevent monopolization. And yet there's monopolization right, left and center all over the place. Like Google monopolizes search, you know, Facebook monopolizes like a large portion of the social media platforms. It's happening already. And this is just like a small sliver of what we're talking about uh, within the grand scheme of things that like, you know, people are looking into. In this particular case as well, I feel like there were a fair amount of concessions that both Microsoft and Activision Blizzard made. And also I'm not really sure what else is there for them to do it doesn't seem like it was denied, but without any recourse. It wasn't like, oh, if you do this, we'll accept the merger. I'm finding it hard to really agree with the decision. There is an argument that the, that the fact that there are so many pre-existing sort of monopolies and controls would to me lead me to believe that, you know, any lever that's available to governments to control that, I would understand why they would take, as opposed to what I think you're arguing, which is like, they're everywhere, so why bother? If it is what it sounds like, but it's not actually what I mean. I think that <laughs> this is like symptom management, right? We're like, we're addressing the one thing that seems easy to address because it's sitting right in front of us. But what we're not doing is addressing the root cause of the issue. And a lot of our laws and constraints built around monopolization was built in the era of oil companies. It's not built for the technology sector at all. We really need to go back to the drawing board, spend time figuring out how we want to proceed on a policy perspective in, in the space moving forward and, and then start to apply those rules. I think this is a drop in the ocean. I feel like the root cause is not really being addressed by government, but this becomes like an easy way to sometimes appease people into saying like, hey, look, we're doing something. So what could you do to navigate the root cause? I mean, that, that, it's a, I think it's a really important point, but I, I guess the next stage is like, so what would you do to manage that root cause? This is why I think it feels like such a, uh, uh, such a hard ass, because I think that we're, we're kind of operating on a perspective of policies. So Australia's got its own policy, UK's got its own policy, US, EU, so on and so forth. Uh, tech companies don't really operate like that. They operate on a global scale. So any sort of effort to think about how we, to even like think about how we think about monopolization in, in the tech sector, we need to start thinking about it on a global scale, which means that the first thing we need to do is like, okay, let's get, let's get outside of our national borders and figure out how we want the tech sector to work within a global landscape. The next step from that is that we need to actually look at the fundamentals of what would be considered tech monopolization. Like what is monopolization? Because sometimes monopolization can be about the user like the total number of users 
that a platform has. Other times it can be about technology. In general, like monopolization rules are not really geared towards a lot of these a lot of these metrics that we often use in tech. So we need to rethink the framework around that. Then we need to come together as a global society and agree on rules uh, and how we're going to operate on this uh, topic so that it's also easy for companies to understand and operate within that context. Yeah, uh, I think like that's where I would start. Okay, so I think we've agreed we may need a few more episodes to solve that one. Well, we'll see if we can solve all of that and the rest of the world's problems in the coming weeks. But for now, we are out of time. Kunal Kalro, CEO and founder of Eugene Labs. Thank you for joining us on Download This Show. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. <laughs> and Dr. Eric Amelie, lecturer in computer science at the University of the Sunshine Coast. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.